Protect Minnesota, the podcast where we explore 52 reasons why gun violence is an issue in our state. We're bringing you a variety of perspectives and voices from across the state of Minnesota, all advocating for gun violence prevention. This podcast is a tool to help decision makers and stakeholders throughout our communities make informed decisions that will mitigate this public health issue. This is also for the supporters, the volunteers, and the frontline workers who give selflessly and tirelessly to the movement. Thank you for tuning in and showing your support for gun violence prevention efforts across the state of Minnesota. I am your host, Ayolanda. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us on another episode of 52 Reasons Why, Protect Minnesota's podcast. Uh, This is Director of Outreach and Organizing, Jared Muscovitz, once again. Um, And I'm so excited to be uh, sitting down today and chatting with Representative Ryan Winkler. Uh, He is the current uh, House Majority Leader in the DFL-controlled State House here in Minnesota. And he will be on the ballot this fall as uh, one of your candidates running for Hennepin County Attorney. And I'm thrilled to have him here to chat today about his background in this work and and, and what he you know, hopes to accomplish uh, if he ends up as Hennepin County Attorney and, and what the role of that office is. So Representative Ryan Winkler, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Well, Jared, good uh, good day. Uh, thank you for having me. I look forward to having this conversation on these critically important issues. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, I think we just want to dive right in, really. And I think, obviously, you know, it's old hat, but this is how we start these things off, right? We I just, you know, our audience needs to know who you are, your background. Yeah, I mentioned you're a legislator. That's one piece of you, but that's not the whole piece. Like, that's not all of you. So tell our audience who you are and, and what you've been working on. Well, I guess most importantly, I uh, live uh, in Golden Valley. I'm the dad of uh, three sons. Uh, my boys are 17, 15, and 12, uh, and are in the Hopkins Public Schools. I was born and raised in Bemidji. Um, I went uh, from Bemidji High School to Harvard for college and then the University of Minnesota Law School. I got involved in politics for the first time uh, working with uh, the Mondale family in the late uh, 90s as I was uh, entering law school and uh, just really have, uh, you know, spent my really whole professional life trying to be of service to the public in Minnesota. It's what I love to do. I came out of law school and worked for a small law firm. I had a choice between a you know big uh, corporate firm and a small firm that was doing work in the Phillips neighborhood and in um, the northwest part of the metro area, uh, working for watershed districts and other organizations like that. And I chose that path and happy I did. Uh, from there, I ended up getting elected to the state house in 2006 for the first time uh, and shifted my legal career into a small business practice uh, helping tech companies launch. And uh, I've been in the state house ever since with the one exception of a three-year uh, hiatus when I followed my uh, wife at the time and her career options to Belgium. So I was there for three years, came back to the house in 2018 and was reelected uh, in my old seat after Peggy Flanagan became Lieutenant Governor and uh, was picked as my colleagues to be the majority leader. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's that that's kind of the timeline and and that's where you currently sit right now. Um, and so what, uh, you know, what, I guess, what led to the decision or, you know, you have to get into all of it, obviously, this is, it was a personal decision to make this switch, right? But, but um, 
you know, when it comes to, you know, the things that you've worked on and your passion for serving the public, you're in a role to do that now, but you're trying to switch to in a kind of an adjacent role, um, similar role, but different as Hennepin County attorney. What, what made you want to dive into that? We are in a really bad spot on public safety, uh, crime uh, being on the rise, people feeling much less secure at home uh, and out on the streets and in their neighborhoods, uh, violence claiming the lives of way too many young people, guns proliferating, uh, people's sense of basic security and safety, even when they're driving on the road uh, is uh, really undermined right now. And at the same time, we continue to have this legacy of racial inequity in our criminal justice system and mass incarceration that was the response to the last increase in crime. And so we have this dual challenge of increasing insecurity and continuing injustice. And we cannot continue the cycle of being a hardline, tough on crime kind of uh, state or nation. We actually have to create public safety from the ground up in communities, uh, understanding its root causes and how to address those long-term and how to better allocate resources we have right now on crime prevention. Uh, I, you know, I'm running for the county prosecutor role. That means I do believe in accountability for uh, people who break the law, especially those who harm others in one form or another. And that's really important. But to me, we are in this situation where we have to shift our criminal justice institutions towards a more expansive view of justice uh, and address the public concern about crime at the same time. And that means being able to work across jurisdiction lines. That means being able to work with law enforcement and work, work with the community. It means knowing how to uh, operate in a governmental setting uh, and leading that. And I felt like rather than admire or just uh, curse the problem, uh, I would try to roll up my sleeves and uh, take the skills I've learned at the state legislature and try to bring it to Hennepin County and make an impact there. Yeah, um, well said. I think, you know, I think listening to you talk about, you know, the intricacies of it, right? Um, it it kind of reminds me, I guess, you know, it'd be nice if there was one clean solution that we could just you know, like, you know, go all in on this is it. We just do this and these problems are solved. It really, it's, it's so complicated and so interwoven into all facets of, life of the economy of social safety nets of all these different things so um yeah i mean and certainly in that role um you're kind of front and center uh for a lot of or really like the, the where the kind of the eye of the storm is if you would kind of use that terminology when it comes to the uh the homicides and the community gun violence and also the police gun violence that we've been seeing um you know make the news and and kind of i wouldn't say been it's been rising, but it's become more visible. This has been happening, as we know, uh, for a long time. Um, you know, you've been in the legislature, like as you said, off and on, but for the majority of the last 16 years um, in different roles and, and kind of rising through the ranks. But you have experienced, you know, different, I think a difference in what the opposition is and how they're, how they work and how they operate. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to what you see as the mo the biggest obstructions in those bodies we can't seem to pass legislation you know we are stuck despite public opinion really being with us on things like background checks um you know when it comes to what's going on at the capitol um you know what 
what are the obstructions in the way and what do you think we should be investing in to deal with these root causes that lead people down the path of gun violence? Well, there's the long-term situation and then there's been something more under development in the last couple of years. So the long-term is a determined effort by uh, gun activists, by uh, an industry-backed gun lobby to fundamentally shift uh, the law's approach to uh, gun ownership and the use of guns and gun violence, to position it uh, as a personal protection issue uh, rather than, um, well, I should say, to position it as a personal protection issue and to embed that protection into the Constitution through legal advocacy. And that has also, of course, included uh, using a lobby effort at Capitol buildings, whether it's in Washington or in the 50 states, to block uh, as much uh, gun regulation as possible, uh, and really to a ridiculous extreme we're seeing in some states. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in the, that has plagued uh, policymaking in Minnesota during my entire 15 years. The ability to move anywhere on a gun bill largely has been uh, only uh, if the gun lobby doesn't veto it through Republicans and through uh, some of the uh, rural Democrats who uh, represent a constituency that is very pro-gun. Mm-hmm. So that that's not a new situation. Uh, when Speaker Hortman and I uh, were elected to take over the House in 2018, uh, we managed to pass universal background checks and the uh, red flag law uh, through the state house, which had not been done uh, really ever in our (laughs) generation. Yeah, that is important to note that those bills did pass in 2018. They have passed, but it's it's the Senate that's just not even taking them up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a significant accomplishment just to Mm -hmm. get it through a Democratic controlled house. Yes, yeah. And so, of course, we ran into that buzzsaw in the Senate, but it was important for us to show that progress is possible. And in divided government, uh, which is what Minnesota has had for almost all the last 30 years, we haven't seen much progress. Mm-hmm. I think something that has changed in the last couple of years is particularly, uh, I would say this comes out of Minneapolis, um, where people feel that the police uh, department is not capable of keeping their homes and communities safe. A lot of people uh, have, I think, turned to gun ownership and personal protection uh, because they don't feel that there is anyone to protect them from people who would do harm to them. And of course, we know that makes the whole situation much more dangerous. But in the vacuum of a public safety, uh, I, I don't quite know how to what metaphor to use exactly, but essentially we've created a public safety vacuum and people come in to try to fill it on their own um, rather than be a victim. And that fear feeds on itself. And what we need to do is shift it around so people start to feel that there is a service-oriented police department there to keep them safe and that they are less reliant on themselves to have dangerous personal protection plans. Yeah, I think you know, we. That's it's so true that you know this. We are seeing a, a rise in first-time permitters um, in the in the Twin Cities in particular uh, in the last couple of years, and and you know it's important for us to always state that we have no problem at Protect Minnesota with legal gun ownership and responsible gun ownership. That's what we're trying to do is kind of we want to raise the bar as to what responsibility means and what what you know 
kind of in the abstract, I always view it as what we owe each other. Just what, what do we need to do to, you know, keep our communities safe, keep ourselves safe. And uh, so no, no issue with people exercising their rights, but we have not, we have not just, we have not regulated things really at all. And, you know, at the last big uh, regulation that became law would have been in 2014 when the domestic violence, uh, you know, bill was our law came into play. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, throughout your time, you, you've had a good. Obviously, you've been inundated in policy and in, uh, in you know at the Capitol for a long time now. Um, in your opinion and in your view, based on what you've learned and experienced and worked on, you know, what do you think? Um, you know. If you could just some of those key root causes or things that you think we could invest in, you know, on the front end to prevent gun violence, because people are always looking for they know this is a problem. They come to us all the time. They say this is a problem. But, you know, most people also say, but I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if that's going to work. There's a lot of there's there's that uh, there's that unsure. There's that feeling that, you know, are we really investing in things that are worthwhile? So what do you think would be some worthwhile investments to uh, to, you know, make sure that people are staying on the path that leads you away from gun violence? Well, I think approaching it from a public health standpoint and mm-hmm. thinking of guns like cigarettes or guns, the possession of a, pers- a gun for your own protection as uh, the equivalent of uh, some an- other antisocial behaviors that we have corrected over the years would be one way. Um, because what we face is not just a political calculation by elected officials. What we have is a culture that is shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that culture shifts to, uh, you know, find <clears throat> gun ownership, gun use, and the concept of uh, firing your weapon at somebody uh, to protect yourself uh, in situations where, you know, it's far more likely to be more dangerous. That cultural mindset has shifted over time. That has been one of the deep successes of the, of the gun rights movement. And the counter to that can't just be policies that are intended to address the worst outcomes of that cultural shift. The uh, goal should be to shift the culture back. You know, if you think back to even uh, the, the uh, myth of the old West and to uh, Wyatt Earp coming into town, one of the things that they did was to Uh, take guns out of Main Street because it was dangerous to have a bunch of uh, drunk cowboys with weapons, right? So Go figure. (laughs) This has gone all multiple directions in our history. And I think um, going to the root cause, not necessarily just political activism or legislative lobbying would be in the long term more powerful than uh, would be more powerful. And I think it's really the only way. You asked about a little bit about the legislature mm-hmm. and how it's changed over time. The legislature represents the will of two political parties and a base of their each party who is deeply interested in state law. That does not represent the broad general public. Uh, and so it tends to be more divided because the base of the two political parties are much more uh, anti each other and demand purity on issues in order to be reselected to come back to the legislature because we're not necessarily dealing with a public that is paying lots of attention to state policy or state decision-making. So they have a lot of sway uh, and without shifting the underlying social and cultural understanding of what gun ownership is about, 
it, it seems to me we're we're going to have this political problem continue. I I I think that's well said. I couldn't agree more. I think, yeah, it, it's such a balancing act, but you know, it's not enough for 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 us just to throw our hands up. You know, I think like it, it, the generally speaking, we hear that all the time. That's the the idea that people look at it from the outside in, and say it looks like nothing's happening, right? But the reality is. There's so much work being done at the legislature, but at the, in the community level, all from a top to bottom across the board on this issue, um, it's just an issue that, for a variety of reasons, as you mentioned, is not easy to solve. Um, you know, one of the things that we are talking about a lot, and we're, we're kind of shifting to at Protect, is this focus on yes, we still talk about the issue of the firearm itself. That's never going to go away, but. Um, we are trying to shift to, you know, listening to communities and, and just trying to meet people where they're at, right? And a lot of that feels to me like what restorative practices are and what restorative practices can do and, and how we use them to provide justice for people. Um, so what are your thoughts on, I guess, how the Hennepin County attorney can inundate or how can you in that role um, practice restorative justice how can you make that part of your I don't want to say platform but kind of you know it, I feel like it, it, it's something that needs to be embedded in what everyone does and especially in positions of power if we're really going to make differences that really reach people in everyday life so and that's kind of an open-ended complicated question but um, generally speaking you know what are your thoughts on how the Hennepin County attorney can yeah, you, know, you said you obviously, right? As a prosecutor, there are consequences for breaking the law. There's accountability, but you also mentioned, you know, it's not just about punishment, right? And I could not agree more. <laughs> so, instead of punishment, what should we be doing? Well, I think, I think that first of all, extru- uh, creating longer sentences does not deter crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, what deters crime is people's feeling that they are likely to be caught and face some consequence for doing so. Um, so when we talk about uh, restorative practices, I think what we're really talking about is using the intervention of the criminal justice system in an individual's or a family's life to create an opportunity to turn a different direction, uh, rather than, for example, to continue a cycle of violence and retaliation, which we've seen, uh, find a way to intervene. If we see an individual who has uh, committed a violent act against someone else, there likely are a uh, circle of people around them uh, who, who are affected by it. And um, we have an opportunity to intervene and potentially help uh, families or younger children uh, or others connected to the person who's uh, being uh, convicted uh, in a different direction or to help deal with their situation. I think there is a role for the kind of restorative justice uh, practices of reconciliation, but I don't think that uh, everyone is ready for that. Not all victims are ready to do that. And sometimes it may take years uh, or never before they are ready to do that. And you can't force it or make it happen. So just like everything else, that is not a silver bullet either. But I think the continuing to use it when possible, to encourage it, to make it an option uh, is something the county prosecutor should do, probably in combination with some sort of diversion program mm-hmm. um, where you're you know, essentially saying, if you can straighten out what you're doing, 
uh, we will forego punishment, but you have to be accountable in some way. And that includes uh, sitting face to face with uh, victims of crimes. Uh, again, I think that uh, that is not a complete answer and that is not a substitute for uh, incarceration in many cases, but there are places and times when that can be the right answer. Yeah, there definitely isn't one whole answer, but I couldn't agree with you more. And I think what I'm pulling out of what you're saying, at least what I'm getting from it is, um, and I, that I, I'm fine to be very positive and refreshing, is that uh, it's it seems like, generally speaking, it's, it's again, it's treating individuals as humans. We have to, we can't forget that aspect of it and to continue to just demonize or label someone as a criminal, you know, right, right off the bat. Uh, I used to work in the field of addiction and treatment. And, you know, the first thing you learn is we don't treat, we, we don't call these clients or these people addicts, right? We don't demonize them and label them just as that. And what you're right, the cycle of violence perpetuates itself. And we, we, we label someone as a criminal. We tell them they're a criminal. They come out of their time served and all they think is I'm a, that's what I am. And so to see the humanity in people and to see, try to steer them, you're right. It's not, you know, not every person's the same. Obviously everyone's different and everyone's going to respond to things differently, but to, to, you know, it is worth it to invest in, in people and to really right. try to make, you know, make people understand that they can change or that this isn't the an inevitability, right? It's not inevitable that you have to pick up a gun and commit a crime with it. Um, you know, there's still a chance for hope. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I don't think that requires us to be naive mm -hmm. and think that everybody is ready to, you know, just given an opportunity, they're ready to be a wonderful person and turn the corner. I mean, that is not the case. You know, if you've worked in addiction, you know that that is uh, certainly not yep. the case. Absolutely. Um, and people have to be ready to do it. There's an age factor in crime. We see that people generally age out of criminal activity after 35 years of age or so. And uh, I think we need to be thinking about, well, how do we um, prevent more people from kind of being in that situation, of course, to begin with, but how do they come out? What kind of lifelong consequences are there? How can we encourage people to uh, pursue a more productive life at an earlier age by removing some of the barriers. But, you know, some people are going to be uh, not amenable to reform and there have to continue to be consequences for them. Absolutely. I think it's important too that like people kind of always assume, right, that recovery or that, uh, and it's, it's very similar how it relates, recovery relates to rehabilitation. They are in so many ways the same thing, right? Um, but they see it as a straight line, A to B. You just, you start the path, you're there. But people forget that relapse is a part, often a part of recovery. And same thing for, you know, people trying to move on from a criminal past. You might reoffend along the way, but it doesn't mean that you're not trending in the right direction and heading down a better path. So I think that's important to note. Um, well, yeah. I also, I also think a lot of the conversation uh, in recent years has shifted away from understanding the victim, victim impact. Mm -hmm. um, and I think regardless, we have to remember uh, that these things, these consequences are real and yeah. that nobody should have to suffer a violent act. Nobody should have to live in a violent household. Nobody should have to have their business vandalized or repeatedly, uh, you know, property destroyed uh, in order to solve a, a broader social problem. That's too much to put on those individuals as well. So I think uh, you know, and w if we shift too far one direction, uh, we end up uh, creating a backlash, which is what I'm hoping to avert 
in my campaign and as Hennepin County Attorney is just try to step in the middle and say, we don't have to go backwards. We can continue to move forward. Mm -hmm. uh, we just have to be responsible about it. I, I couldn't agree more. That's well said. And I think that's a great place to, to kind of to, to put a bookmark in this. So um, last thoughts, I guess. I, I just want to give you a chance to say, you know, uh, just tell the people, you know, again, like you're running for Hennepin County Attorney. County Attorney, what do you want them to know about uh, you and your your uh, campaign for that office? Well, I think there are a number of candidates running. It is an elected position. It is not a uh, courtroom job. It's elected public leadership role, and there are uh, many, many outstanding attorneys of the County Attorney's Office. But what we need in public safety right now is stronger leadership and ability to build coalitions across communities, across jurisdictions, across bureaucratic silos, and find a way to build on common ground. And I think those skills are needed um, now more than ever. And as a legislative leader through the pandemic and through uh, civil unrest and the murder of George Floyd and everything else, I've uh, acquired the hard way, the skill set to uh, lead through difficult times. And that's what I'm trying to do uh, in my campaign. That's what I offer as a candidate. Ryan Winkler, uh, current uh, House Majority Leader for the DFL-controlled House, uh, Minnesota State House, and uh, current candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. You can find out more about his campaign and uh, him and his work at ryanwinkler.com. Uh, Representative Winkler, thank you so much for your time and for your work and for your comments today. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Yeah, thanks for the good conversation. This has been another episode of 52 Reasons Why, a Protect Minnesota podcast. I'm Jared Muskovitz, and we'll catch you next time. Take care. Thank you for joining us on Protect Minnesota, the podcast where we explore 52 reasons why gun violence is an issue in our state. If you want to listen to past episodes of the podcast or for more information about how you can be involved in this movement, visit protectmn.org. Until next time.